Today's Vet Girl podcast is sponsored by Zoetis, makers of Vanguard CR Lyme vaccine. Hi, Vet Girl here today with Dr. Richard Marconi, who's a professor of medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University Medical Center. Dr. Marconi, thank you so much for taking the time to be on today's Vet Girl podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be with you. So just so everyone and our whole audience knows who you are, I was wondering if you could give a little bit of background about who you are and what you do. I would be happy to. I'll start with a little bit of background on my education and what actually has led me to a long career in working on Lyme disease. So my bachelor's degree was in biology at the William Patterson College of New Jersey. From there, I went on to the University of Montana, where I studied microbiology and biophysical chemistry and earned my PhD. And after earning my PhD, I did postdoctoral training at the Roche Institute for Molecular Biology, where I studied bacterial physiology. Then I did a second postdoctoral training stint at the Rocky Mountain Laboratories in Hamilton, Montana, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. Uh, And it was there that I began my work on Lyme disease. And now I've been working on this subject for about 28 years. So we have a long history of working on the organisms that cause Lyme disease, as well as other bacteria that are closer related to the Lyme disease spirochetes. Now at Virginia Commonwealth University, one of the key focuses of my research is developing better preventative strategies and treatment strategies for Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, and other tick-borne infections. Fantastic. I know the veterinary community is very thankful for people like you, um, just because Lyme disease is so confusing and you know it's such a prevalent disease in veterinary medicine. So thank you for all that you do. My pleasure. So I have the honor of living in every single tick-infested state, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and the Boston area. And then now I live in Minnesota. And so I see a ton of Lyme disease in dogs, and I see a ton of ticks, even on myself sometimes. Do you happen to think that we're seeing an uptick in Lyme disease in dogs in North America? I don't think there's any question about the uh, recent surge in the number of cases of Lyme disease in canines. And I would add that this is not just a problem in canines. Uh, we also are seeing a very significant uptick in humans as well. And we would speculate that that translates to other mammals, including horses. So clearly, we are seeing an increase in the number of cases that is evident by reviewing the data that the Companion Animal Parasite Council provides for us each year which shows that so far this year, we're about 10% above where we were last year. Uh, so it is a, a trend that is going to increase. And we also know, as you alluded to in your comment, that the tick population is really expanding. They're moving out of the areas where we had considered them to be mostly confined in the past, and they're spreading into new areas. So not only are the ticks on the move, but their numbers are also increasing. You put that those factors together, and we have certainly a worrying concern, which is that the Lyme disease trend, as well as other tick-borne pathogens and diseases, will be will continue to increase for years to come. I think veterinary professionals can also attest to that. They're definitely seeing it in areas that they've never seen it before. Now, what are some of the most common clinical signs seen in Lyme disease in dogs versus in humans? And what's the biggest difference between those two populations of Lyme disease that you may see? Well, I think one of the key differences really just has to do with the fact that when humans become infected, they're able to articulate to us some more of the the subtle or less overt clinical manifestations that they may be experiencing. Uh, For example, the fact that they simply don't feel well, 
they don't feel like they typically do. So there are these subtle uh, presentations that we can pick up in humans much more easily than we can in canines. Now, of course, uh, some you know some pet owners are very, very good at picking up on minor behavioral differences in their animals, but that's not always the case. So as a result, um, sometimes we do not catch Lyme disease in canines or recognize that it's ongoing until the manifestations becomes more severe. And sometimes that can involve lameness, kidney issues, uh, carditis, and a variety of other very significant and severe mid to late stage clinical manifestations. Now, I know having practice in Minnesota, we end up doing a lot of 40X SNAP tests, and it's part of just our routine heartworm testing. And as a result, we're seeing a lot of positive dogs that test for Borrelia on these 40X tests. And so it's hard to be able to interpret it on whether or not that dog truly has infection or active infection versus if they just had exposure. What do you generally recommend that veterinary professionals do when they do get that positive 40X test in terms of A, whether or not the dog is symptomatic or B, whether or not they live in an area that may affect their clinical decision-making? Well, I think the first thing that needs to be considered simply is that if a dog tests positive via any diagnostic test that's currently available, uh, then you need to accept the fact that that dog is a dog that is at risk for Lyme disease. There could be no better evidence of that than seeing a positive antibody test. So when a dog tests positive, it's important to take to be proactive in terms of preventing additional infections from occurring in that animal and also to make sure that the dog is properly treated. We certainly know that the antibody tests have some limitations, but they are extremely valuable tools. Uh, the uh, SNAP test, for example, is remarkably valuable at, at giving a clinician an understanding of the risk of Lyme disease in canines in their particular practice area. And of course, you can always consult with information provided by the Companion Animal Parasite Council to get a broader picture of risk in canines. But there is an important point that I would like to make, and that is uh, addresses a question that I frequently get asked, and that is, if a dog is antibody positive, does that indicate an active infection or uh, does that indicate exposure? Typically, the Lyme disease spirochetes, in order to elicit a positive antibody response in an animal, have to establish an active infection. So if a dog tests positive and that dog has not been treated, I think it's fair to assume that that antibody test is indicating an active infection. After treating a dog, the antibody test may still remain positive for some time, but it should decrease over time. Uh, and in that case, we might be looking at exposure or previous exposure as opposed to active infection. These are difficult questions for clinicians to answer uh, and to address, but uh, I think, again, that the value of these tests is remarkable for helping clinicians decide on a case-by-case -case basis what the risk is for dogs in their particular area. I do agree. I think the biggest takeaway is that there's been a failure of preventative care where whatever medication they're using in terms of flea and tick control is failing or, you know, they're not tick combing or watching out for Lyme disease. Now, how long does a uh, tick need to feed in order to transmit spirochetes to mammals? Well, you know, that's been worked out quite carefully in laboratory animal model studies. So we have a very good idea of what it takes time-wise 
as well as what the spirochete or the bacterium needs to do in order to successfully transit from a tick into a mammal. So the time frame that you'll generally hear reported for the transmission of Lyme spirochetes is anywhere from 24 to 72 hours. And I agree with that time frame. The reason that that range is fairly broad is because there are many variables that can influence how rapidly the Lyme disease spirochetes may transit. They can be things as simple as the health of that individual tick, how aggressively it feeds. It can also be influenced by the specific strain of the Lyme disease spirochete that that tick happens to be carrying. And then, of course, the variable, which is that every mammal is different and is, is going to be, in some cases, more susceptible than other animals to acquiring the infection. So I think the 24 to 72 hours is, is accurate. The reason that we generally do not see transmission prior to 24 hours is that the Lyme disease spirochetes have to prepare themselves for the passage from the tick to the mammal. It's not simply a passive practice. So when the spirochetes are living in a tick, they are essentially coating their surface with a variety of different proteins. And in order to move from the tick into the animal, they need to change those proteins. So they have to adapt to that new environment of the mammal. And that process of changing the proteins that are on the surface of the bacterium so that the spirochetes can now move from a tick into a mammal really cannot occur any faster than about 24 hours. So that's why we put 24 hours as the most uh, rapid time frame in which the spirochetes can transmit. I think that was the best unofficial explanation of OSP that I've heard. But veterinarians are often so confused about OSP. They hear about it from, you know, different drug or vaccine manufacturers. Do you mind just mm -hmm. elaborating a little bit more and how it's going to affect diagnosis in terms of diagnostic testing like the Acuplex and how that can make the vaccines vary? Sure. Well, first, let's start with the definition of what OSP is. So the term OSP is used frequently when we talk about Lyme disease vaccines or when we just talk about the biology of the Lyme disease bacteria. And what OSP stands for is outer surface protein. So it's simply an abbreviation for that particular group of proteins. Now, we tend to hear the most in the literature as well as in discussions about outer surface protein A and outer surface protein C, or as I'll call them, OSPA and OSPC. But it's important to point out that OSPA and OSPC are not the only outer surface proteins produced by the Lyme disease bacteria. They actually have the potential to make a tremendous number of these OSP proteins. But they don't make all of those proteins all the time. They make them when they need them. So in that sense, the bacteria are fairly smart and energy efficient. They only make what they need when they need it. And as an example, when spirochetes are living inside of a tick that is in the unfed state so prior to it taking a blood meal, in that particular environment, spirochetes are producing a considerable amount of outer surface protein A or OSPA. So that coats the bacteria in that environment and helps protect them from what is a fairly harsh environment in the unfed tick midgut. Now, as ticks feed and blood enters into the midgut, the spirochetes have to adapt to now this new environmental condition. They no longer need OSPA, and they will transition from producing OSPA to producing OSPC. And that is critical because once they can transit to making OSPC, 
they can now make the passage from the tick into the mammal where they can now cause an active infection. And when spirochetes enter into an animal, they will continue to produce OSPC at very high levels for at least a couple of months. So the analogy that I often use is that if you go outside in the coldest day in the winter versus the hottest day in the summer, as humans, we adapt to our environment by changing our coat. The Lyme spirochetes need to do exactly the same thing as they transit from an unfed tick to a fed tick into a mammal. They need to change their coat to adapt, and their coat is made out of outer surface proteins. So they change those proteins in order to survive in different environments. So helpful. Thank you. Another question that I often hear veterinary professionals asking is they will often say, oh, well, is this a Bactrin vaccine? Do you mind explaining what exactly is a Bactrin vaccine and how is that different than other types of vaccines? I'd be happy to do that. So as we look to develop or we look at existing vaccines that are available for bacterial infections, they fall primarily into two general categories. And those two categories of vaccines are what we refer to as the Bactrin vaccines or the subunit vaccines. Now, subunit vaccines uh, have played a very important role in veterinary medicine for a long time. They have been uh, at the center of Lyme disease vaccine development efforts, at least the early efforts at developing vaccines. And as you may know, most of your lepto or all of your leptospira vaccines are Bactrins. So what is a Bactrin? Well, a Bactrin, in spite of its remarkable uh, usefulness over the years in veterinary medicine, could honestly be considered one of the crudest forms of a vaccine. And the reason that I say that is that you really have no control as a scientist uh, in developing a Bactrin in terms of what is in the Bactrin formulation. So let me back up on that and again explain the basic contents of a Bactrin. In order to make a Bactrin, you would simply grow a culture of the bacteria up in the laboratory. You would recover those bacteria from the culture. You would then inactivate those bacteria so that they cannot cause an infection. And then you emulsify them so that they are liquidy and more amenable to injection. And then there are some filtration steps as well. But what that translates to is that a Bactrin basically consists of almost everything that the bacteria makes when it's growing in the laboratory. So it's really a very complex mixture that has many, many different proteins in it, many, many different components. It turns out that only a small fraction of what the bacteria make in the laboratory is actually useful in eliciting protective immunity. So in spite of the value of Bactrins over the years, uh, the general trend in vaccinology is to move towards what we would generally refer to as cleaner vaccines. In other words, ones that have less extraneous material. And that's where the subunit vaccines come in. In contrast to a Bactrin, a subunit vaccine typically can, consists of one or more proteins derived from an organism that causes disease, i.e. the Lyme disease spirochetes. But with a subunit vaccine, you have complete control as to what proteins are in the vaccine. There are no extraneous ingredients, and that allows you to really tailor it and optimize it to make it the best vaccine available with the less chance of adverse events. So Vanguard Sierra Lyme, for example, is a subunit vaccine that consists of simply two proteins, OSPE, and then a unique laboratory-generated and modified form outer surface protein C. 
Super helpful explanation. Thank you. Now, why is Borrelia outer surface protein variability important in Lyme vaccines? And is it really necessary to booster CR Lyme the first time you give it? Well, I'll start by addressing the issue of bacterial diversity and why that's important to consider, uh, both in studying the Lyme disease bacteria, but also in understanding the potential of vaccines. Uh, I have been working in the Lyme disease field for about 28 years, and one of the things that all researchers in the Lyme disease research community came to recognize many, many years ago was that the bacteria that cause Lyme disease are, in fact, remarkably diverse. Uh, I think it's almost fair to say that no two strains are exactly alike. Uh, and this is something that really must be considered in vaccine design. So again, if you collect different Lyme disease isolates from nature and you compare their properties, you will find that not two of them look identical. So as a result, that needs to be considered in the formulation of a vaccine. So if I could draw specifically on our experience in developing an OSP-C-based component for a vaccine, we know that in nature, there are many different versions of OSP-C. And while OSPC has been proven in the literature to be a very good vaccine antigen, one of the problems with OSPC is that if you use a single version of it, it does not provide broad protection. And that's because of the diversity of OSPC that exists in the Lyme disease spirochetes in nature. So what we did in our efforts to develop a broad, broadly protective vaccine was we identified the most important parts of the OSPC protein. And when I say the most important parts, I mean the segments of the protein that actually trigger antibody responses. We identified those parts of OSPC, and we took those unique segments from many different versions of OSPC and assembled them into a single protein that was created in the lab called a chimeritope. And by doing that, we were able to make a single protein now that could provide protection against many, many different strains. I think, as you may know, Justine, in the Bactrin vaccines, uh, they contain, for the most part, one version of OSPC. So when you're looking to utilize OSPC as a protective antigen, that is one of the uh, weaknesses of a Bactrin in that it can only elicit antibody to one version of the OSPC protein which may or may not be effective at killing strains producing other versions of OSPC. So that's one example of why diversity is so important to address uh, when dealing with both diagnostics and both with vaccine development. Now, to get to your question of diagnostics, uh, that diversity of the Lyme disease spirochetes can also impact on our ability to readily interpret the results from diagnostic assays. Um, as you mentioned, there's really two major tests that we talk about now, and there are others, of course, in the pipeline. And, but there is the IDEX test as well as ANTEX test, the Acuplex test. Uh, the IDEX test tests for antibody to a fairly conserved, meaning a portion of a protein that does not vary much from isolate to isolate. It has its strengths and weaknesses, as all assays do. Uh, the Acuplex test is testing for antibodies to multiple different proteins. It's important that that diversity be considered in the future refinement of these diagnostic assays because the Acuplex test, for example, will test for antibody to OSPC. But the test really can only test for antibody to one version of OSPC. 
And remember, there are many of them out there in nature. Now, that is compensated for by testing for antibody to other antigens in that test. So in a nutshell, there are the tests that are available are remarkably useful. They are extremely valuable. But all tests that are currently available do have some limitations, and it's important for uh, a clinician to be aware of what those limitations are. Fantastic information. So when we reflect back on our patient population, knowing that the Lyme vaccine isn't traditionally a core vaccine or an annual vaccine, what are the general recommendations? Is it dogs that are hunting dogs or dogs that spend a majority of time outdoors? Is it dogs that live in certain states? Uh, What are the general recommendations for when we should be reaching for the Lyme vaccine? That's a great question, Justine. And there, the answer, I think, is, uh, is an important one to, to think about. So Lyme disease is spreading. There's no question about that. It's not only spreading in the United States. It's spreading throughout Europe. It is moving quite rapidly up through Canada. So it's not just a United States problem. Uh, so it's the, Lyme disease affects dogs from really very different parts of the world. And prevention is so key. We know that the clinical manifestations of Lyme can be quite severe. Yet we can, with a good vaccine, we can potentially prevent the, the potential for the development of those clinical manifestations. So what populations should receive a Lyme disease vaccine and should it be core? Uh, I can give you my personal opinion, and my personal opinion is that dogs that are living anywhere within the eastern half of the United States, and you could literally draw that line down the middle of the country, uh, are certainly at potential risk for Lyme disease, and as such, they should be protected. So it is often stated that an, an owner will state, well, my dog doesn't go outside, or my dog spends very little time outside. The truth of the matter is all dogs go outside at one point or another. They are very attractive uh, feeding material for ticks. So even dogs that are not typically spending significant amounts of time outside should be protected. And then it follows from that that any dog that spends any time at all outside is also a very important uh, target for vaccination. So I think what medicine has taught us over the years is that there is no more cost-efficient way to prevent infectious diseases than vaccination. And we certainly have many historical uh, references to that that have shown us how effective vaccination can be. So as the risk of Lyme spreads throughout the United States, it's important to be ahead of the curve and prevent Lyme disease before it becomes a truly major problem in your particular area. So I do believe that Lyme vaccination should be part of the core uh, vaccine protocol. Dr. Marconi, fantastic information, and I really appreciate you taking the time to explain all things Lyme today to us. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to bring this to the forefront. This is an important issue, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much.